America, where money grows on trees, <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong. I was the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem near Chinatown. Even more surprising was the day after October 31st, when little people wearing masks ring doorbell and said "trick or treat." <laughs> I said to myself, "What have I got myself into?" <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later. We married the next year. I also assume just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was! <laughs> um, uh, as an only son, raised in a traditional Chinese family, I thought being loyal to my parents was the most important. Therefore, I never emotionally left my parents and cleave to Angela. I tried to please both sides, end up please no one. <laughs> Angela fell in love because I was not fully devoted to her. My father was well liked, but very passive at home. So I never learned how to be a strong, loving husband. And without Jesus Christ. I didn't have the biblical principle how to love sacrificially. Things progressively get worse and worse after years of unresolved issues and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So, with the encouragement from both of our sons, we begin the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. I never imagined. That I will get a divorce. Since I was a little girl, I dreamed of belonging to a loving and caring family. While dating in college, Leon treated me like a princess, but my parents disapproved of our dating. But I refused to end our relationship. So my mom slapped my face for the first time in my life. However. I still consider our love to be true and everlasting. As soon as I finished college, I came to the U.S. for graduate school, but I gave up my full scholarship to get married instead. I also find a full-time job so that Liang could concentrate on getting his Ph.D. My parents were furious. Liang and I faced tremendous. Pressure and expectations from parents on both sides, especially Liang was the only son. I felt as if he had become a totally different person. So I cried through sleepless, many, many sleepless nights for years. I endured this for the sake of our two young sons. Liang was laid off from his first first job and went back to school again. I worked the night shift, and providing the only source of income until Liang completed both his Ph.D. and doctorate in dentistry. Then we devoted our energy to build a thriving dental clinic. On the outside, we had it all: a new house in the comfortable suburb of Chicago, a doctor, a husband with two doctorates, and both sons in dental school. But I was depressed, miserable, lonely, and felt like a total failure. My dream of belonging to a loving and caring family became more and more distant as the years went by. So finally, we began the paperwork for a divorce. I didn't think things would get any worse. I was. Wrong. On May fifteenth, nineteen ninety-three, our son Christopher after,、um, came home after his first year 
at University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He made announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do anything about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wives respond quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bag and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. He was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. I fell to the floor in shock and anguish. My body was numb and as cold as ice. Without any relatives or a church family, I had no one to turn to. In desperation, I went to the phone book and radio, hoping to find help. But there was none. In my mind, not only had my husband refused to stand by me, also my Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I left home, not telling Leon where I was going or what I was doing. I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never being much of a reader, on the train I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. I then looked out the window and marveled at the beauty of nature. The views extend in every direction and seem to have no end. I had been an atheist all my life, but for the very first time, I noticed the wonder of creation. Then I knew that there must be a God. One of my favorite verses today is Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. Even though everything around me proclaimed the work of his hands, I had suppressed the truth of God for 51 years. I was without excuse. There is a God. I cannot remember if anyone else was on the train with me, but it seemed as if I was there all along. I lost sense of time as I sat there in perfect peace. Then 
I heard a still small voice. You belong to me. All my life, I long to belong to somebody. First, my parents, then my husband, finally my children. But God, who knew my deepest need, told me that I belong to Him. Those four words from God were like a healing palm to my shattered heart. So, although I was not seeking God, I was found by my loving Creator. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number at the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady and who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt like I couldn't soak up enough. I had never heard of a Bible bookstore. So when I was brought to one, I was like a little kid in a candy store. Along with the Bible, I read Christian book after Christian book from morning to night. I rented an extended stay apartment. So my time in Louisville was like a private retreat. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. Another one of my favorite verses is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited, told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. (laughs) And I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every day of the week. She spent hours each morning in her prayer closet, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, and uh, her faith was vibrant and alive. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know that God was also work on me. So I started going to church with her. A friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of God and his word. It was while studying the Bible in our own church and the Bible Study Fellowship group that God also Remove the blinder from my eyes that I also surrender my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue that kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way of preparing us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. For my childhood years, I lived as most Chinese-American kids did. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. (laughs) You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age... I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. Unfortunately, pornography has become the master of many youth and adults, men and women. 
Many of us do not know how easily accessible it is on the internet and do little or nothing to protect ourselves and our homes from it. Did you know that the pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar industry? There's a few other industries that are multi-billion dollar industries. Take the major television networks, networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Their combined annual revenue is $6.2 billion. The combined annual revenue of the major league uh, sports, baseball, basketball, hockey, football, is $12 billion. But if we were to add up these two industries, they would pale in comparison to the annual revenue of the pornography industry. $57 billion. We are in an all-out war with the pornography industry, and to be honest, we're losing miserably. Even scarier, statistics say 9 out of 10, 9 out of 10 children aged 8 to 16 have already viewed pornography on the internet, often when simply doing their homework and they come across it by accident. Even worse, 1 out of 5 children aged 10 to 17 have received a solicitation over the internet by a sexual predator. And often, our children had no idea, didn't think anything was wrong. So hopefully, that's alarming to us. What can be done? My parents and I advocate what we call having double internet protection. That's having an internet filter and an accountability program. Internet filter blocks questionable sites from being viewed. Accountability program logs in when sites might get through a filter. The two programs that my parents and I use can be found at these two websites. One is uh, caninewebprotection.com. The other one is x3watch.com. So everyone, you can get out your pen and paper. If you have children, if you know children, if you have grandchildren, write this down. If you're a grandparent, you don't have any children in your home anymore, but you have grandchildren and you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Still write it down and make sure that you give it to your children to get it on your grandchildren's computer, unless you want your grandchildren to look at pornography. Remember, if garbage goes in, what's going to come out? Garbage going to come out. We need to talk openly. And there's one thing I need to mention about this that I usually mention when I talk to Christians. They're both free. (laughs) So don't run out and get them. There'll be enough for everyone. Um, There should be nothing holding us back to to really do well. There's some good ones that are paid uh, that have both the filter and the accountability program. One is uh, safeeyes.com, netnanny.com, covenanteyes.com. Those are really good programs that um, do more than these because they're free. But I know people sometimes are on limited budgets. Students are sometimes on limited budgets. I want to challenge you men. Okay, listen up, men. Men, put a filter on your computer and let your wife or your girlfriend or accountability partner hold the password. Sexual purity does not just happen by accident. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and through being connected with the church accountability, we need to have a plan and fight indwelling daily sin. We also have to talk openly and frankly with our children about sex and sexuality. Silence is not an option. If we don't talk to our kids about sex and sexuality, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, just like death and taxes, another thing is the world would teach your kids about sex and sexuality. Definitely. So I just wish that our children first heard about sex and sexuality at home in a Christian context. Don't give the responsibility to the public schools. Please don't give the responsibility to the public schools. And also, it's not even the job of the pastor. It's not even the job of the youth pastor to teach your kids about sex and sexuality. Parents, it's your job to teach your kids about sex and sexuality. Amen? Amen. Parents, I mean pastors, youth pastors, we are here to come alongside you to equip you as parents to teach your kids Because our children are hearing about sex and sexuality earlier and earlier and earlier. Even in kindergarten, they have coloring books and picture books about homosexuality. So let us be the first people to teach our kids, not the playground, not public school, not television. Even Disney has, uh, uh, you know, has incorporated this into their programming. So with pornography fueling my attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old. But I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I uh, moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I no longer kept it a secret and I came out of the closet. 
I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily. But it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. But I was a dental student, so I didn't have much money. And so I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, just three months, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad is a dentist. He knew the dean really well. And all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit. And I'd stay in school for the next three months and graduate with my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? (laughs) Well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important. Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, they realized that, that education is not important. A career is not important. A relationship with Jesus Christ is more important. And unfortunately, often as parents, we have elevated our kids' education and career over their relationship with Jesus. Well, can I just tell you, I was not happy about their decision. (laughs) They were not on my side. They were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the garbage. I called him frequently, but I always got his voicemail. I would leave messages, but he would never call me back. Once he even threatened that if I ever brought up God, we would never see him again. Leon and I thought Christopher might come home if we bought him a plane ticket. So on Christmas Eve, I went to O'Hare Airport to pick him up. That was before 9-11, when we could still go to the gate to meet our guests. I stood there peering down the jet bridge in anticipation for Christopher. As the arriving passengers came into view, my heart leaped with excitement, but then dropped in disappointment when I realized that was not Christopher. One by one, I watched the travelers reunited into the arms of their loved ones where I stood there all alone. When the last person came off the plane, then I realized that Christopher was not on that flight. So I drove home and came back several hours later for the next flight, but only repeat what had happened hours before. Our son, Christopher, was now returning. In tears, I drove home alone. Since Christopher would not come to us, we went to him. We flew to Atlanta. But on the second day, he kicked us out. 
not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher something that was my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But let, but I left on his countertop anyway and walked out the door. We found out later, as soon as we walked out the door, he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our own church and from the Bible study fellowship group, we cry out to God for Christopher. And my wife began to pray a very bold and very dangerous prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for Christopher. And she would literally spend hours each morning in her prayer closet on her knees, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for others. She wrote down some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray, and Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait. Be still and know that I am God. As I look back upon those years when I pray for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer, but we are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with the prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received 
a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So, I tried calling all my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than they're any good for me. Well, what I didn't realize was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, someway, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I didn't want to make that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice that it doesn't say God's anger. It's not God's judgment. But it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. So she tore off a little piece of the atom machine tape paper, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings, counting her blessings, and taping more pieces of animation tape to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block, and trying to stay to myself. I mean, I didn't really want to mingle with those bad people, you know, those criminals. Because, <laughs> of course, I didn't think I was a criminal. And I passed by this garbage can. And they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So it was overflowing out. It was a heap of trash. And I looked at this and I thought to myself, my life right now is like the contents of this trash. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was merely three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and I opened up that good book for the first time. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me just tell you, I was not thinking this is the Word of God. 
I was not thinking, this is the answer to all my problems. Actually, I thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. They shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. The nurse shut the door behind me, sat me down. And I just knew in my spirit that something was not right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now ever reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years. But news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. A verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife, endlessly. I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymns fear my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was lying in my bed and I looked up at the metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had scribbled something in the corner and it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future you see at the most hopeless point in my life God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past he still he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. 
My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you I said a prayer after that and everything was just perfect. That's far from the truth. God was convicting me of the idols that I had in my life. The most obvious was drugs. I was in prison for drugs, so no one had to convince me of that. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible. It was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. And as I was reading the Bible, I also came across some of those passages, those sticky passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexual identity. So I went to a prison chaplain and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason, every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against gay sex and gay relationships. I couldn't even finish that book. And I gave it back to the chaplain. So, I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification for homosexuality. I wanted to find, I was looking for anything, any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous gay relationship. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I went and I I was scattering the pages of scripture. I couldn't find any. So I was at a turn point. And a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, and pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my attractions to not only dictate who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. Follow Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, but then I added to that, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. How many times have we heard that? But now after reading through the Bible several times, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say that again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions or my desires. My identity is not gay, ex-gay, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I used to think that if I wanted to please this God of the Bible, I had to become straight. I had to become a heterosexual. But even people who have heterosexual feelings still struggle with sin, so that should not be my goal. And God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not our goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. Because I shouldn't focus upon what I feel or even think or my attractions or my desires But I needed to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. 
change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability to be holy in the midst of our temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. The ultimate issue is not my temptations or even my desire for a relationship, as important as that might be. But the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. With that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told my parents, I think God's calling me to ministry, mailed me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. (laughs) They mailed the application to me into prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open, began filling out the questions, writing my essays till I got to the end of the application where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me, me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people I knew in prison were, uh, were people in prison, so I had some slim pickings. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, just received my Doctorate in Ministry last year from Bethel Seminary. I also had the honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We actually have them available outside. Uh, well, actually, they're, they're sold out. However... The good news is we will mail them uh, in. My mother and I already pre-signed them, and we will pre-sign the ones that we send. I think Amazon's selling them for like $13 or $12, and, and then you have to pay for shipping. But this we're, we're going to pay for shipping, ship them here to uh, First Alliance, and, uh, and also pre-sign them. So my mom and I will stay up late to pre-sign them once we go home to send them for you guys. Uh, and so my mother and I, we co-authored it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote all the odd chapters. And I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to show you and tell you from our own first-person voice, you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives. And yet, God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. We have a study guide at the back and Christian high schools and even some youth groups are using our book kind of as a textbook, as a guidebook, using our uh, study guide to help our kids see what biblical sexuality looks like. And it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded, flooded with resources from media, from the public schools, in the libraries. You know, our libraries have... I don't think they have any books that talk about Christian sexuality because they're not allowed. And, and yet and we, ha- we need to be giving our kids more resources to uh, talk about biblical sexuality. Even some people come to our um, uh, table and they buy like 12 books. And we're like, 12 books? And they say, well, I have 12 grandchildren. Silence isn't an option. But God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on the issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't enough, God has a sense of humor. How many of you guys know God has a sense of humor? God has brought me back full circle to Moody, and I'm now teaching in the Bible tomorrow. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God, amen, God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. As I look back upon our lives, our lives were far, far apart from Christ. 
And I look at my life and I realize that I made some bad decisions which have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realize something that I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Now one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow on this earth. And yet we take tomorrow for granted. You know, it took getting HIV for me to realize an important, profound truth. That as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus, I must live with a sense of urgency. This world we live in today, all the craziness, threat of war, threat of terrorism, earthquakes, floods. As I look at this world we live in today, I know this world doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian maybe come to church every Sunday and good people. You know what I'm talking about, good people. But not doing much for the kingdom of heaven. Not doing much to be a part of the Great Commission. As I just turn on the news, read the newspaper, I'm fully convinced this world doesn't need another good Christian. What this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says, but the person on the right says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Do you know that God created you for greatness? Not in the eyes of man to say, oh, look at how great I am, but great in the eyes of God, which means being the least of these, which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. You know, I don't know how many years the good Lord will give me. And I know they're numbered, but I've asked for one thing. And that is in my life, I might be able to see this generation, young and old, rise up and take their place in this world and turn it upside down for the sake of Christ. Because whether you're ready or not, all of us, this is a guarantee, all of us will one day stand before our God our creator. And my hope is that he will look at you in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant.